could probably ask this question every week that we study Genesis. We'll be in Genesis chapter 32. We probably ask the same question every week about Jacob and about ourselves. Why are we so faithless at times? God has told us what our responsibility is. And we're not opposed to it in the sense that, no, God, you don't know what you're doing. But we usually, what I've called a go on ahead of God in order to accomplish what we think is best apart from God. And it's difficult because we're often pursuing a good thing. We want God's blessing. Okay, So let's just think about it from a spiritual perspective. We want God's spiritual blessing in our lives. And we're, we're unwilling to do it in God's prescribed way. God has made it clear what He want, what He expects of us, and yet that's not good enough. We're not going to pray and and wait. We're not going to trust God. We're going to 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 do it our own way. And so there's often scheming mixed with faith. This is the life of Jacob. It's a life that is filled with faith and a life filled with scheming. And and there there's this ongoing mixture mixture. We don't often have the same timetable as God. It's like the single person who engages in premarital fornication. The specific act itself is not wrong when done in the right timing. That is, the act of intimacy between a man and a woman is not wrong when it's done after marriage. But when done before... It's done out of God's timing. But that person doesn't want to wait to get married. They, they want it now. So what's the difference, God? Whether I do it now or then. I want it. I want this blessing that you've provided. And I'm going to take it. Apart from your timing. And so Jacob here, throughout his life, has been a mixture of faithful uh, of faithfulness, a man of faithfulness and a man of faithlessness if that makes any sense. He would lean on God while trusting in Himself at the same time. He would scheme His way to get God's blessing. He deceived His father to get Esau's blessing. He schemed His father-in-law by building a huge flock of sheep and a herd of goats, but then later acknowledged, you know what, that was actually God that did that for me. That was actually God who provided for me. And here in chapter 32, Jacob's going to learn that God is the source of of His blessing. That God alone is the source of His blessing. Let's read this chapter. I'll start in verse 1. Genesis chapter 32. This is the Word of God. Now as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. And Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named that place Mahanaim. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my lord that I might find favor in your sight. The messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, And furthermore, he's coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. And then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people who were with him 
and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. For he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. He will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. So he spent the night there. Then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He delivered them into the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on before me and put a space between droves. He commanded the one in front, saying, When my brother Esau meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong and where are you going? And to whom do these animals in front of you belong? Then you shall say, These belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present sent to my lord Esau. And behold, he is also behind us. And he commanded also the second and the third and all those who followed the droves, saying, After this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on before him while he himself spent the night in the camp. And then he arose that same night, took his two wives and his two maids and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream, and he sent across whatever he had. And then Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. And he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip which is on the socket of the thigh because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh and the sinew of the hip. Jacob thought that he was the source of his own blessing. And he would often have this idea come up in his mind throughout his life And God is teaching him here in this passage and us that we are not the source of our own blessing. We are not the source of our own blessing. This passage is broken down into three main parts. First, in verses 1 and 2, God reminds us that He is with us. 
God reminds us that He is with us. And then verses 3-21, to we often seek God's blessing our own way. We often seek God's blessing our own way. But then, verses 22-32, God shows us that blessing comes only from Him. God's blessing comes only from Him. So first, God reminds us that He is with us. Verses 1 and 2, Jacob is met by these angels of God. And when Jacob saw them, verse 2, he said, this is God's camp. These angels should remind us of another event in Jacob's life when Jacob was met by angels. And that is back when he was at Bethel before he went out to Paddan Aram to be married and to work for Laban and to get all these resources that is his latter dream. The point of that story was what? It was a reminder to Jacob specifically from God that I am up above in heaven, but I am not far off from you, Jacob. These angels are descending and ascending this staircase to me that they're doing my bidding. They're, they're protecting you, Jacob. That is, God was simply saying to Jacob with these angels, Jacob, I am with you. Why would Jacob need this reminder? This second main conflict in his life was now over. The first conflict was between him and Esau, and he fled from that. The second main conflict is between him and Laban. God overcame in that situation, and they parted in peace. We saw that last week. They made a covenant with one another. The third main conflict is back to Esau. And before this conflict comes up and and rears its ugly head, God is there to remind him, Jacob, I'm with you. Don't be afraid. Jacob had gone out from Esau's presence as a single man. How much did he have to his name? Nothing. He had a promise, but he had nothing as far as possessions. And now he is, he is, uh, he has these four wives, and he has these eleven sons, and at least one daughter, and hundreds and hundreds of sheep and goats and and camels and male and female servants. So, so as this new conflict is about to arise, God reminds him of his presence. And this is why I, I often say it is very important for us to regularly be under the teaching of God's Word. Why? Because God will often teach us things that He is preparing us for. That is, something that's going to come down the road. A lot of preachers today, uh, particularly ones that we could call seeker-sensitive, are, seek, are, are trying to, to be relevant with their audience. And the way that they do this is they, from what I understand, uh, is they look at the top, top 50 bestseller books or movies, see what kind of topics are there, and, um, and then they develop sermons based on, on those topics. Because they, want, they don't want people to walk out feeling as if that didn't have anything to do with me. They want something that people are interested in. But the power of God and His Word when it's preached on a regular basis, preached in a systematic way, is that it speaks to not only our perceived needs, and that's what they often talk about in those types of churches, perceived needs. 
We want to meet the perceived needs, the seeker, the, the needs that they have. But not only the needs that we know about, but God's Word speaks to the needs that we don't know about. Like here with Jacob, before this conflict comes, he reminds him, Jacob, I'm speaking to you. I'm with you. And Jacob may be thinking at this time, why are you telling me this? I already know that. But Jacob needs to be reminded of this because he's about to have a huge conflict here, potential, potentially huge conflict with his brother. And God wants to remind him that he is there. And so I encourage you to regularly be under the teaching of God's Word. Regularly be in the Word of God. Even if you walk away from a sermon and go, that didn't address any of the issues that I'm dealing with right now. You know what God could be doing for you? He could be simply preparing you for the time when that issue comes up. You know, the time to learn God's Word, the time to learn about what God about what God is like and what He expects of us is not when we're going through the trial. That can happen. But the best time to learn is before the trial happens, like with Job. That, that God prepares us in advance so that when the trial comes, we're ready. So God reminds us that He is with us. God reminds us of His presence. Then, verses 3-21. through 21. We often seek God's blessing our own way. This is Jacob here. Seeking God's blessing his own way. Here he recognizes in verses 3-8 through that he's going to have an encounter with Esau at some point in his future. Why? Well, Jacob had been far away from home. Hebron is way in the, the southwest portion of Israel where he had come from, where he had left. And he goes all the way up to the northeast past Israel, out in, in the, the, towards Syria there, and Paddan Aram, where his mother was from. Well, Esau is not going to have anything to do with him up there. And so Jacob's not very fearful of him until he starts heading back home. Why? Where does Esau live? Esau lives in the name, his namesake land, basically, Edom, which means Esau. It means red. They both mean red. It's the hill country. That's Esau's land outside of Israel, but south of Israel, not too far from it. And so Jacob recognized, if I'm going to be in southern Israel, at some point I'm going to run back into my brother, and if he's as, as mad, if he's as flaming mad as he was when I left, I'm going to be in big trouble. And I don't want to get ransacked. I don't want to get blindsided. So I'm going to head this off. I don't want to be ambushed by him. And so he, he sends some messengers down. This is what's going on in verses 3 through 6, or 3 through 8. Verse 6, he sent some messengers down. Find out what's going on with Esau. In fact, when you see him, tell him that I've got lots of flocks. I'm, I'm coming back home. And when they return, they give him a report. Notice um, at verse 6, the messengers return to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore, he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Now, apparently, they didn't talk to Esau specifically. Apparently, they didn't talk to Esau's people because they turn around and come home and they say, Jacob, you better watch out. He's coming with 400 men. Well, what is Jacob thinking? Why else would he be coming with 400 men? What he's later going to find out is Esau actually wants to escort Jacob and all of his company home. This is a kind... Uh, this is a kind uh, gift that Esau is giving to his brother, but Jacob doesn't recognize this. 
He thinks he's coming to attack me. And I'm going to prepare myself. Notice verse 7. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Okay, again, he's trusting in himself. He's not trusting in what God just said. I am with you, Jacob. And so Jacob decides to uh, scheme, I would say, in order to protect himself. Verses 7 and 8. He decides to divide and concede. Instead of divide and conquer this man of the field, this man of uh, uh, is probably very well trained in battle. He's going to tr- divide and, and try to give him a bunch of gifts to, to uh, appease him. So here, here's what I'm going to do. I'll divide my camp into two camps. That way, if Esau comes and he attacks the first camp, then the rest of us will split. We'll be out of there. And we'll be able to escape. That's what he says in verse 8. Then verses 9 through 12, he prays. Okay, here's again this faithlessness, verses 7 and 8, mixed with faithfulness. That is, he believes that God can act. But then he moves right back in verses 13 to 21 to scheming. Okay, here's all the gifts I'm going to say. When you come to him, tell them, tell him this. He divides them all up. He just keeps going back and forth between scheming and praying, scheming and praying. And this is why Jacob's life is a mixture of faithfulness and faithlessness. Verses 9-12, through 12, because Jacob is fearful for his life, he turns to the only place that he knows other than his own scheming, and that is God. Verses 9-12. through 12. And by the way, this is an excellent prayer that Jacob prays to God. It's a very good model prayer for us to follow when in times of trouble. Notice the elements of it. First, he acknowledges God as sovereign. Notice verse 9. O God, my Father of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives. The reason I say sovereign is because that word Lord, there should be in all capital letters for you. And the reason that it is is because that's a covenant name for God. Anytime you see Lord in the Old Testament or in the New Testament in all capital letters, that means that's a covenant name for God, Yahweh or Jehovah. That's the idea that God is there, that He is the sovereign Lord, the way it's translated in, in other translations. Okay, so first, he acknowledges God as sovereign. Secondly, he reminds God of the promise that God had made to him. Notice the end of verse 9. Return to your country. You said to me, God, return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. So here's what I'm telling you. I'm reminding you of what you've already said. Here's a good way to pray for us. Talk to God about His promises to us. You said you would keep me to the end. And so do that. Keep pursuing me. If you said you would finish what you started, then do that, God. You say, well, God already knows that. Well, doesn't He know everything you're saying in prayer? Remind Him about what He has said. It's a great way to pray. Thirdly, third element of His prayer his confession, verse 10. He confesses his unworthiness. He says, I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan. Now I've become two companies. By the way, that's what Mahanaim means there in verse 2. It means two camps, two companies. Jacob says, when I started out, it was just me and my staff. And now I'm this huge... This huge group of people, all these animals, and you can divide me up into two. 
as he does. So he confesses this unworthiness. Fourthly, in his prayer, he petitions God. See that there in verse 11? Deliver me. What specifically was Jacob, what specific trouble was Jacob concerned about? It was this conflict, this potential um, meeting with Esau. So God, deliver me from his hand. Don't, don't allow me to die at his hand. And finally, he gives God motivation for why God should answer his prayer. Verse 12, For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. Remind God of his promise. God, if your promise is going to come true, then you have to respond here. For Jacob, he was supposed to be made into a great nation and and receive the land and so on. So he reminds God of gives him motivation for why he should help him. Again, great prayer, but it, he, Jacob goes right back into scheming in verses 13 to 21. Here's his plan. I can't defeat Esau. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to appease him with my gifts. If I just pile up enough gifts for him, then maybe his anger will be settled. Notice how many goats and sheep he is giving away. Verse 13. So he spent the night there and then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams. So 440 sheep and goats. Remember how many he started with not six years earlier when he, when he said to Laban, hey, let's make a deal. I'll take all the speckled and spotted ones. So the fact that he's giving up 440 of these suggests that he probably has more than these. And that tells you about how many he's accumulated over that short period of time. And God has really prospered him. Altogether, Jacob is willing to give up 550 animals to his brother in order to appease him. And possibly more because uh, in verse 15 it talks about the colts of the milking camels and it doesn't number how many there are. So it could be another... Another 30 there, not, not exactly sure. And this is at the heart of what Jacob needed to learn. That all of his scheming was not going to get anywhere with man. That, that what he needed to learn and that what we, we often need to learn is that reconciliation does not come because of us alone. Okay? Reconciliation comes as a result of God changing that other person's heart. So if there's a conflict that you have with somebody, we can do all sorts of things. We can scheme in so many different ways to try to to appease them and get their heart right, but ultimately we can't change their heart for their actions. Jacob needed to learn this. That it was God that was going to win the battle for him. that, That it was God who was going to change Esau's heart. In fact, he already did. Why? Because last time Jacob saw him, he was angry. Or at least when he was leaving... He was ready to kill him. And now when, when you, we'll see next week in chapter 33, when Esau sees him for the first time, Jacob is so... Uh, he gets to the point of groveling. He bows to Esau seven times. And you know what Esau does to him? Get up here. And he embraces him and he kisses him and he, and he weeps on him. You see, God already changed his heart. It wasn't the gift. Oh, what a nice gift. You, 
He, he thought of me. I really appreciate that. Jacob's trying to buy back this relationship and, and God's trying to show Jacob it's not because of you. I changed his heart. And so all your scheming doesn't work. Because ultimately, reconciliation happens as a result of grace. And grace, as I mentioned this morning, is unearned, unwanted, unmerited favor. You can't earn it with God. You can't earn it with man. You can try all your little schemes, all your little plans, but they will fail, ultimately, unless God is in it. Notice Jacob's goal in this at the end of verse 20. Then afterward, I will see his face. Okay, After I send all these droves of animals and people, afterward, I will see his face, and perhaps he will accept me. He already prayed to God to protect him, but he wasn't willing to wait and see what God was going to do. God, please, God of my father Abraham and Isaac, O Lord, sovereign Lord, deliver me from the hand of Esau. Amen. Now, let me see what I can do to make sure I appease Esau's wrath. Do you see? Move on ahead of God. I'm not going to wait for you to answer me, God. I don't want your answer. I want it done right, and I'll do whatever I can to make sure it happens. And it will be clear in chapter 33 that that Jacob is trying to buy Esau's favor. He sends all these gifts. He calls him Lord. I mean, who was it that was supposed to be serving whom? It was supposed to be the older serving the younger. Jacob had already been promised that because he received that blessing. And yet, Jacob is bowing down to the person who's supposed to be serving him. He calls him Lord. He calls himself my, your servant. Esau, I'm your servant. He gives him all these gifts. God already made, to clear to, made it clear to Jacob that he would be blessed. And when God plans to bless someone, no scheme of man, no power of hell can stop him from being blessed. Esau could not have gotten in the way of God blessing Jacob. But Jacob didn't want to wait and see so that's why you have this wrestling match in verses 22 to 32. Because God needs to have an encounter with Jacob to remind him again that it is he who brings the blessing. Jacob, it's not a result of your scheming. It's a result of me. Let me show you this through a, a physical example. Verses 22 to 25, you have this struggle. And the text doesn't tell us who his opponent is. Jacob here crosses the fort of Jabbok in, verses, in verse 22. He sends his wives, his four wives, and says his 11 children, speaking of his 11 sons. He has a daughter, at least Dinah. We're going to learn about her in chapter 34. So at least one daughter, maybe more. This is a river that flows, the, this fort of the Jabbok is, is a river that flows from west to east. And it's in, it's, uh, it flows into the Jordan River and it's about halfway up between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. So you have this river flowing. And Jacob is over here on the other side, just about to cross into the, the Promised Land. And his, his family's on the other side of the river. And he comes back and he's all alone. The text tells us that. Look at verse 24. Then Jacob was left alone. 
He had sent all that he had. Verse 23. He sent everything. All of his family. All all of his possessions. Now, we don't know why he stayed back. It may be because he wanted to pray to God at this time. It may be because he, he wanted to make sure everyone got across. It may be because he was expecting someone to come and and to attack. Whatever the case, the text tells us he was left alone. And then we have this mysterious figure come to him. Notice verse 24, Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And uh, again, try to put yourself in the historical and cultural um, context here. They don't have the aid of artificial light here, so so without the aid of, of the moon and perhaps the stars that night would have been pretty black. Jacob was approached by this stranger. And it's interesting because as we read, Moses doesn't clue us in as to who Jacob's wrestling with. Not until the very end, which is when Jacob finds out who it is. And so so we're left to to wonder, who is this person? Just this good? Is this bad? What's going on here? Of course, many of us have already heard this story multiple times, so we know. But, but maybe for Jacob in his mind, maybe they were going to take all his possessions. Maybe they were going to destroy his family. Maybe this was one of Esau's representatives or one of Laban's family coming after him. He didn't know who it was. And they wrestle and wrestle. And Jacob is resilient. And they get to the point where it's almost time for the sun to come up and the attacker apparently doesn't want to fully reveal his identity knowing that once the sun comes up, his face will be seen and Jacob will know who it is. So so notice what happens in verse 25. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh so that the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Just with a touch, this attacker is able to dislocate his thigh. And this starts to give us an idea, a clue, into who his attacker is. This is no ordinary person. He's wrestling with him, wrestling with him, and finally, at at any time he wants to, he simply touches Jacob's thigh and he dislocates it. And notice what Jacob does. Verse 26. Then he said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. After Jacob's thigh is dislocated, he continues to wrestle with this man. He will not give up. He's relentless. His thigh, his hip has been put out of joint. He's become weakened, but, but he continues to wrestle. And the wrestling was, be, was not because the, the attacker was unable to overcome him. Obviously, he could overcome him with just wounding him with just a touch. He could have just destroyed him right there. The point of it was to show Jacob, you need to remove your self-sufficiency. All this wrestling that you're doing is not because of you. It's not You're not prevailing. And Jacob continues to, to wrestle and he starts to recognize who this could be. And that's why he asked for this blessing in verse 26. When the attacker says, let me go for the dawn is breaking, Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Hey, morning light's coming. Let me go. And Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Now, would he say that to 
an enemy of his. It seems as if Jacob's starting to get an idea of who his attacker is. And as you probably know, the answer to that question is, it is the angel of the Lord. And I would say that the angel of the Lord is Christ before His incarnation. This is a what theologians call a Christophany, an appearance of Christ before He was uh, born of Mary. So what's going on here is that the Lord is struggling with Him. And, and the Lord could have continued and continued and went on and on until He totally crushed Jacob. But instead, He gives Jacob... The, the the sense that he has prevailed. That is, that Jacob has prevailed. Jacob feels like he's winning. And the reason he does that is to show that the blessing doesn't come from you, Jacob. It doesn't come from your struggle, your scheming, all of your best abilities. What I'm trying to get you to understand is that all of your human conventions... You're scheming with your brother. You're scheming with Laban. And now you're scheming here. Your your efforts, they don't work. They're insufficient to prevail against man and God. And so, in verses 27 and 28, the Lord changes His name. So He said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Of course, we know that the Lord knows Jacob's name, names, Jacob's name, but He's not asking because He doesn't know. He's asking to contrast His old name, which has meaning, with His new name, which has meaning. What did His old name mean? It meant heel grabber and eventually came to mean deceiver. And the Lord's saying to him, what is your name? What, what are you like? And the idea is that Jacob's a heel grabber. He's a schemer. He's a deceiver. Notice what the Lord says to him. Verse 28, He said, Your name will no longer be Jacob. will no longer be deceiver, schemer, heel grabber, but instead it will be Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. You've striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob your name is now going to be Israel. But you still don't get what I'm trying to teach you. And that is that your most powerful force, all of your scheming, your natural abilities, that you thought is what worked to prevail against Esau when you got the birthright and the blessing, what you thought was what caused you to win against Laban with all these resources that you've accumulated. All of that, Jacob, is ineffective before me unless I am contending for you. That's the point. May God contend for you. That's the idea of Israel. Not only that you contend with God, but God contends for you. And here's the point. If you don't have God contending for you, none of these schemes work. All this wrestling... All this struggling, all this scheming is ineffective against man and God. I am the one who grants success to you, Jacob. It is me. If you want to win against man, if you want to win against me, then I have to contend for you. And that's what I want to be the reminder for the remainder of your life and for your people. 
that the reason that you win, the reason that you prevail, is not because your name is Jacob, heel grabber, deceiver, schemer, but because your name is Israel, God contends for you. So that every time you hear that name, Israel, you remember God's contending. Exodus 14.14, the Lord will fight for you and you will hold your peace. You see, we are like Jacob. Our whole lives as believers are are marked by opposing God, or much of our lives are marked by opposing God and His revealed desire for us. And in the end, we think, we conquered you, God. We had all these desires that we wanted. You finally gave in and gave them to us. And what God is saying is, no. What I've actually done is I've changed your desires to be in line with mine, and that's why you're getting what you want. I don't know what it is for you that you struggle with. I don't know what specifically you is, is a challenge for between you and God. The thing which you oppose God the most, the thing that you know about clearly in His Word, that He's told you what He wants there, but you don't want, you don't want to do it His way. Maybe it's reconciliation with an estranged family member or a fellow believer or a co-worker. Maybe it's discontentment, joylessness in your current situation. When you walk through life and it seems unbearable because of the trials that you have to go through, you don't often talk to God about it because you don't want to face Him with those trials. But when you do, if you're honest with yourself, you would say, I can't do what you're asking of me. It's too hard. It takes too long. I can't wait for you to bless me. It doesn't make sense. I've seen lots of other believers take the other route and they've gotten there just fine. And we struggle with God until He finally touches our hip. He removes our self-sufficiency and helps us to see that all of our scheming, all the desires that we want are unsatisfactory, are insufficient apart from Him. And at the end, we think, well, we've prevailed over God. We've, we've gotten what we wanted, and yet God has really bent our desires to match His. We seem as if we have, it seems as if we have prevailed, and yet God is the one who has prevailed. When we look at other people and say, they've done it a different way, they've done it a wrong way, and they've turned out okay, what we've done is we've taken on the mindset of Jacob. That if we scheme, it's okay. Because in the end, it turned out okay, but what we didn't connect there. We didn't make the connection that their scheming was not effective on its own. It had to have God working through it or in spite of it. That's not the prescribed way God has given. So find out what God's prescribed way is to accomplish what He wants in our life. Overcome this struggle. 
And that's when God prevails. When we've submitted ourselves to Him. No matter how hard. Verse 29, the attacker blesses Jacob. Then Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. He said, Why is it you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Jacob asked for his name perhaps because he wanted power over his opponent. Often in in the ancient Near East, when they would find out someone's name, it would say that they have power over that person. But the, the opponent doesn't clearly reveal his name. He doesn't say, I am the Lord, your God. He doesn't say that. He could, but he doesn't do that. Why? Because Jacob could already figure it out. He already touched his hip. He showed his power. He, he, um, he changed his name. He knew everything about Jacob without, um, without, uh, without having to, to, to prod. Jacob could figure it out on his own, and Jacob, in fact, did. And so God gives him a blessing there. The text doesn't tell us what kind of blessing it is here at the end of verse 29, but apparently it is some measure of God's presence, some measure of God's spiritual and perhaps physical and financial blessing. Notice his response in verses 30-32, Jacob's response. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face. See, Jacob recognizes who he was with. Yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose up on him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Jacob recognizes here that he had been with God, and that's why he calls this place the place where I saw God. That's what Peniel means, the place where I saw God. Even though God wrestled with me, he preserved my life. Jacob responds, I would say, again, in faith. He responds in faith. This is God, and He preserved me. He showed mercy to me. He could have destroyed me here. And what did God leave him with? A changed name and a limp. So that every time Jacob would get up on his two feet and walk and limp his way to wherever he was going, he would be reminded of his insufficiency apart from God of His need, His full sufficiency on God. And the people of Israel would also be reminded of this, wouldn't they? Why? Because verse 32 says that because of this event, they no longer eat the, uh, they no longer eat the thigh there, the, uh, the hip joint of, of the animal. Every time they prepared meat, they were reminded of God's presence and his removing of self-sufficiency of His people. So, like Jacob, our lives are often mixed with faith and scheming. We scheme to get what we want. We work hard to make our lives better, even spiritually. And we mix our faith with faithlessness. And if we're not coming to the point where we find our sufficiency in God, then you know what God does for us? He lovingly taps us on the hip. Okay, Not literally, but but He removes our self-sufficiency by showing us that we are weak. Isn't that what God did with Paul? Paul thought, I've got to have this thorn in the flesh removed. I've got to have it removed, God. I'm going to be effective for you. I need it removed. And what did God say? 
No. No, you don't. You need to be weak. Why? Because when you're weak, Paul, I'm strong. I am strong, and so, so I'm going to perfect you in your weakness. And Paul says, I'm glad to have this thorn in the flesh because in my weakness, God is strong. Do you understand what that means for you? It means that if you want God's blessing, if you want God to contend for you, if you want Him to fight for you, then God first needs to remove your self-sufficiency. Jacob had gone year after years. I mean, he's in his hundreds at this point. He had gone years relying on himself, on his own power, his own strength, his own scheming. But it was not until God removed his self-sufficiency that that Jacob really started to move forward spiritually. And that means that there is no physical gift, no resource in your life that you have that God is unwilling to remove from your life in order for you to learn to be sufficient in Him. God is willing to take anything that He wants to away from you so that you will cling to Him. You will stop relying on yourself. What I just said may have frightened you. Wait a second. What kind of God do we serve? Is this how ruthless and cruel our God is? That He would take away gifts from me? Something that makes me happy? I mean, my happiness is tied to all those things. To my health to my relationships with my family, to my possessions, to my job, to my position. You're telling me that God is willing to take those away in order for me to rely on Him? What kind of God is this? Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. God's primary desire for you is not your happiness if it's tied just to those things. God does want you to be content with what you have. Okay, Don't get me wrong. God wants you to be content. You shouldn't be unhappy with what you have. But He doesn't want your happiness to be tied to your things, to your health, to your possessions, to your family, to your position. He wants your happiness to be in Him. He wants you to be holy. And if that means removing some of these things so that you are more holy, if that means removing these things so that you you get your eyes off of them and onto God and start clinging to Him. And that's what He'll do because He's a loving Father. And let me assure you, when your sufficiency, your contentment, your happiness is found in God and in God alone, then any of those losses that I just talked about, you will be able to face and it will not be a problem. Oh, it'll hurt. Don't get me wrong. There will be grief, but you'll be able to face it. Why? Because your happiness is not in those things ultimately. Your contentment is ultimately in God. Ask Job. Job was content with his possessions and his family and his health. But if that's all he was content with, when God took them away, he would have given up. But he didn't. When all those things were taken away, when that loss came like a whirlwind, 
Job was secure, unshakable, because his confidence was in God, his promised Redeemer. I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand on the earth. Job 19.25 In what is your happiness rooted? What brings you the most satisfaction and contentment? If it's in the things that you have, if it's in the gifts that God gives, if it's in the dreams that you're, you're going after, then can you still be satisfied in God if those are taken away? All those gifts are taken away. If the thing that you love the most is taken away, can you still be satisfied? If your dreams are not realized, we want to follow God's desire. We want God's blessing for us. And so we pray like Jacob, but we also scheme. And when we do, we find ourselves wrestling with God, begging for His blessing. And God often has to teach us that our sufficiency does not rest in ourselves, our own ingenuity, our wisdom, our scheming, our resources, our health, our family, or any gift that He gives us. God wants us to see that our sufficiency ought to be in Him and in Him alone. Let's pray. Lord, make us sufficient in You. Help us not to be double-minded in our ways. Forgive us for our frequently defiant independence. Help us to lean not on our own understanding, but in all of our ways to acknowledge You so that You will direct our paths, so that You will make them straight. We often rely on ourselves apart from Your prescribed desires, and we need You to do the hard, right thing like You did with Jacob. We need You to break our wills. Help us to recognize that we are not the masters of our own universe. Help us to recognize that You do not exist to serve us, but we exist to serve You. We are Your creatures. You're so gracious with us. Like a loving Father, You don't treat us with anger. You don't strike us down. You don't fly off the handle. You don't become impatient with us. Instead, you are, you are so patient and gentle with us when we fail. But You're also stern enough and wise not to allow us, allow us to end up on the path of destruction. And so we're asking for Your loving hand to guide us in the right way and to keep us on the right path. If that remains removing our self-sufficiency, we ask for it humbly, recognizing that You will be with us all the way. Thank You for the promise of Your presence. And we pray that You would lead us all the way home. In Jesus' name, Amen.